Thank you. The Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina is now sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good morning. Good morning. Our first case this morning is Ponder versus Ben. And we will hear from the appellant. May it please the North Carolina Supreme Court. Uh, Chief Justice and your fellow justices, my name is Amy Simpson. I'm an attorney with Sedona Law in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I represent Mr. Mark Ponder, the appellant in this case, and the plaintiff in the case at the trial court level. My request to you today is to set aside the decision of the North Carolina Court of Appeals and reinstate the denial of the motion to dismiss entered in this case by the Honorable Judge Bell. Before I begin, I would like to note that I would like to reserve time for rebuttal and would request five minutes. My argument in this case is simple and quite frankly better said by Justice Donna Stroud, who wrote what I will opine is the dissenting opinion in this case. I could arguably stand here and simply read her opinion and in my, in my estimation, the choice of this court would be clear. But since this is my moment to convince you, I will simply say the Court of Appeals in this case reversibly erred because it violated the rules of appellate procedure by substituting its own judgment for that of the trial court. It chose to weigh the evidence in order to reach its decision, and for that, it is error. It was the job of the Court of Appeals when presented with the appeal by the defendant to assess the case only if there existed competent evidence to support the decision by the trial court. Had it done its job, what it was bound to do was to look at the evidence on the record to determine if it was competent to support the denial of the motion to dismiss for personal jurisdiction on the grounds of Rule 12b-2. I would opine that the key pieces of this case and on the record are as follows. The verified statements of Mr. Ponder in his complaint and affidavits regarding Mr. Bean's conduct with his former wife, now Mr. Bean's wife, Mary Ponder, particularly with regard to the conduct between Ms. Ponder and Mr. Bean, now Ms. Bean and Mr. Bean from May 13, 2013 to November 2013. Another key element are the admissions of Mr. Bean, for which I will walk through them in a moment. And chief among the uh, points of evidence in this case is the subpoena that was issued in 2018 for the phone records for all lines belonging to Mr. Bean for the period of time of May 2013 to November 2013. That is the date that now Mrs. Bean met Mr. Bean and November 13, 2013, when the parties legally separated and thus the claim for alienation of affections would have stopped. And uh, interestingly enough, I would point that not only should you look at that, th those records and the number of references to the 704 number that was added to the line paid for and under Mr. Bean's name in June of 2013, a mere two months after he met um, now his now wife. The reason hey, Ms. Simpson, let me interrupt you just a second to make sure I'm following your argument. Is it your testimony that the record establishes that the number to which these calls were made was definitively uh, known to be the one that uh, Mr. Bean gave Ms. Ponder? Um, no, there's not that express statement, but there is competent evidence for the judge to have decided credibly that that was her number. And I will walk you through why I believe that to be the case. Okay, but I mean, I, I was, I, I had understood, the reason I asked was I thought you had uh, stated definitively that that was the number and I was wanted, I, I had understood the record differently and just wanted to make sure I was not missing something at the outset. Thank, thank you, you. You are not, we are on the same page. Um, on and one of the elements of why I believe there's competent evidence to support 
the trial court's determination that that was, in fact, Mrs. Bean's number, which was being paid for by uh, Mr. Bean, are as follows. First in the record, when we served a, when we served a subpoena um, on the records, we obviously served it on the opposing party who went, who shortly thereafter filed a motion to quash on January uh, 3rd, 2018. They acknowledged and stated that the reason that they were doing a third party objection as opposed to an AT&T is that it was Mr. Bean's personal confidential information that may be privileged. They further stated in the motion to quash that it should be limited to only that particular communications between Mr. Bean and now Mrs. Bean. That motion to, to quash was denied on April 20th, 2018. What is important is that at no time in any of the filings, in any of the arguments, in any of the affidavits after April 30th, uh, April 20th, 2018, did anyone opining on behalf of Mr. Bean or his now wife, Miss, uh, Miss Bean, that that was not her number. They knew why we were uh, subpoenaing it. Uh, we got the records, their verified business records affidavits. They tried to quash it and, and were unsuccessful. And they had the records same as we did for the time period prior to the 2019 hearing on their motion to dismiss. So that is, to me is one element of the credibility argument, which is uh, upon which the, the judge could opine it was her number and the number that Mr. Bean gave her, and here's why. On the record, it is undisputed that Mr. Ponder claims he never owned any property in North Carolina, does no business with the state of North Carolina, has no family or friends in North Carolina, and was in North Carolina once over the last 30 years. He makes no explanation, therefore, if, if, why, if faced with the argument that this is her phone number. Why he would have a 704 number to communicate with Mary Ponder or now Mary Bean. Mr. Bean, Mr. Bean admits he was living in Naples when he met Ms. Ponder in 2013. Mr. Ponder admits, I mean, Mr. Bean admits that Mr. and Mrs. Ponder were married when they met. Um, Mr. Bean knew that Ms. Ponder was staying in the Naples home that was owned by her or as part of her marriage and that she actually lived in another state, namely North Carolina. The Ponders lived together as husband and wife until November 13, 2013. After the parties met, Mr. Bean purchased, Mr. Bean, Mr. Bean admits to purchasing a cell phone. There we go. Sorry, Your Honor, Your Honors. Mr. Bean admits to purchasing Miss uh, now being a cell phone for her use. The he does not deny that. Mr. Ponder explains that he discovered the cell phone and that he did not buy it for her and had no idea about the phone prior to it being um, prior to him finding it. The phone communications between that number added in June 2013 and um, beyond November 13, uh, through November 2013, totaled over 400 communications. Um, these cell phone records are entered into evidence and produced pursuant to the big business records affidavit. So the judge is free to decide whether or not, based on what the judge heard prior to that, if that was in fact the line that he purchased for Miss Miss B. Um, Mr. The records show that. Mr. Bean has offered conflicting testimony in this case, wherever it suited him. In fact, I will draw your attention to the fact that in his affidavits and initial depositions, he says he refers to Ms. Ponder as a friend, someone of a daughter, and that is how it's always been. On December 20, 2017, in another matter in another state involving some of the same parties, he testified in a deposition that he and Mary had been dating for five years. Mr. Bean then files an errata sheet to this deposition, changing his answer from five years to five months, 
But in that regard, he got married, admittedly, it's not in dispute, that very much. So it calls into question Mr. Bean's uh, um, um, credibility. Furthermore, Mr. Bean initially denied paying any of the legal bills for Ms. Bean's North Carolina, uh, North Carolina divorce attorney until he was confronted with said truth. He claims that he did not know what was for, but it was a wire transfer into the state of North Carolina to an attorney. After acquired evidence may be used to, to support a pre-date of separation uh, um, accusation of alienation affections. In this case, it's not disputed that as soon as her children were out of school in June 2014, she moved to Florida and into a residence owned by Mr. Bean. Ms. Simpson, again, uh, to make sure I'm not missing the flow of your argument. If you look at me, the ultimate standard that we've got to look at is the findings support the, the findings have sufficient evidentiary support and the findings support the conclusion. I, I think we, one of the few things I think we all agree on in this case. Um, it, it looks to me in, in looking at the order uh, and trying to, to sort out what the order's findings actually say. They say first, and, and the, all of the factual information is in number four, I believe. Um, if you disagree with that, tell me, but I think I think an agreement on that. So it says one that the defendant uh, actively communicated electronically with uh, Ms. I called her Ms. Ponder. You're correct. Okay. You know, it's been now uh, on or before the date of separation. That's number one. Number two, and that's in that's in four four a four b says um, the, the uh, excuse me. While it was secondly, why these communications occurred while Ms. Ms. Bean was still living in North Carolina. That's number two. And number three is that these contacts were significant. I mean, that, that appears to me to be this. If you just look at things narrowly as a matter of fact, that's what the trial court found. Correct. You've been, you've been arguing so far that there's evidence to support those findings. If we back up a second. Is it your contention that that findings that one the defendant actively communicated with Ms. Bean uh, before the date of separation? Secondly, that Ms. Bean was living in North Carolina at the time that these communications occurred, and three that they were significant. That those findings are sufficient by themselves to support a determination of jurisdiction in this case. I would argue yes, and I would point to the case of, um, of Cooper v. Shelley and Brown v. Ellis, which are the two primary cases that deal with this type of um, issue. Brown v. Ellis is a North Carolina Court of Appeals case, uh, 2007, in which the Court of Appeals upheld, uh, determined that the, even though the contacts that the defendant had in North Carolina were telephone and emails to the plaintiff's wife, that it, that would tantamount to solicitation. In other words, allow for the jurisdiction by finding that the defendant solicited the wife through those communications, even though he argued that that was, he did not know she was in North Carolina when he was making those solicitations. In this case, what is not in dispute Neither Mr. Bean nor Mrs. Bean dispute she was living in North Carolina for that time period, May 2013 to November 2013. There's no dispute that's where she was right residing. Her children were in North Carolina. And Mr. Bean argued that, well, just because she's residing in North Carolina doesn't mean she was in North Carolina when the calls were received. And I and I do not find a case that would support that rationale, particularly in light of the Brown v. Ellis case. Also, Cooper v. Shelley is the other um, case that dealt with the level of contacts between the, um, across the, um, by electronic means. And in, the, in that case, uh, 140 NC app at 734, the Court of Appeals found solicitation and a sufficient, sufficient basis for personal jurisdiction based on an unspecified number of phone calls made to and emails made to plaintiff's husband when he was living in North Carolina 
They did not find that they needed to find that when those communications were received, she was actually in North Carolina. It was sufficient to find she was living in North Carolina. And that is not in dispute in this case. She was living there as were her minor children. And in fact, the date of separation was not till November 13, 2013. And she stated nowhere on the record. And there is no case at any level that suggests she moved out prior to November 13, 2013. And in fact, the cases that came before this indicate the opposite, such as the domestic violence here. So my work, so my position is that he it's undisputed he gave her a phone. It's undisputed he communicated with her. He in fact admits communicating with her at least on one landline. Mr. Ponder uh, um, noticed uh, in his affidavit could could verify that he communicated with her on the cell phone he had for her. And then once we subpoenaed the records for all the phones that Mr. Bean owned, there was in fact the phone that was between that was opened on June 2013 after he met her and then continued on thereafter, which I believe is another distinguishing factor between the case that Mr. Odin sent over um, uh, just frequently, uh, among the Munga case. And in that case, uh, let's see, I don't have the, I can get you the citation, but in the Munga case, it, it talks about how in today's day and age with cell phones, People have exchanges, like a 704 exchange, but it not, might not mean you still live in North Carolina, that you might have moved because we take our numbers with us. That cannot be the case here because the number that we're referring to was not even started until June 2013 after they met. So this was not a pre-existing number she had. Then you might be able to argue, well, I didn't know if she moved. And so that is a distinguishing factor from this from this argument. Can I, um, can I ask you, I want to follow up on that. Um, so the case you're referring to, I call it Muha versus Wagner. I'm not sure <laughs> the correct pronunciation. And it was decided by our court after the Court of Appeals opinion in this case. But, it, but another distinction between the two cases, between that case and this one, it seems to me, is, is the question of, of the um, content of the communications and the purpose of the communications. So to establish minimum contacts, in that case, there was no dispute about the uh, phone calls or texts um, potentially being the subject of the wrongdoing. The, in, in that case, it was a um, domestic violence protective order, but the, the harassing phone calls that all happened on one day were, there was no dispute that if that they, the con, you know, those were the bad behavior, if you will. Right. But in this case, how, how far does the plaintiff, how much of a connection does, in order to establish personal jurisdiction, does the plaintiff have to establish regarding the content of the, of the communications that, that the defendant had to ultimately avail himself of North Carolina. So, so for example, um, if if Mr. Bean's communications were completely unrelated to anything having to do with the tort of alienation of affection, would that st would his phone calls alone still be enough to establish minimum contacts? And under my reading of Cooper v. Shelley and Brown v. Ellis, the answer would be yes, because we have found under oath that the purpose of those communications was for the purpose of uh, having a relationship with his wife for inappropriate purposes. And the case law says, once you've established those communications, it, it, it is well within the province of the, uh, the Superior Court judge to believe our client that that's what those co the content of those communications were. Because in, unlike in the, I don't know how to pronounce it, that case, Unlike that, they were just two parties, and the only issue at play was domestic violence. And the issue was more, um, they had a history of domestic violence, and the more issue was, did he have any reason to know she was moving to South Carolina? In her case, we have two interested parties, Ms. Ponder, now being, and Mr. Bean, who have an incentive not to tell the truth. And in fact, it's called into question when you call her a daughter figure, and then you end up marrying her. So in our case, for purposes of jurisdiction, the the jury may decide otherwise, or that our communications were, their communications were innocuous enough, but for purposes of jurisdiction, we have a time to undergo that the purpose of those, uh, of those communications 
was to alienate her affections. And although they've denied it, there's ample evidence in the in the record, including buying a, or paying for a secret cell phone for a married woman without telling her husband, without making it be publicized to her husband, that the purposes of those communications were untoward. So that, to me, distinguishes between what happened in this case and the one-on-one -on -one, um, individual parties with, uh, in that case, where she just, she just moved to South Carolina, which you can live right across the border of North Carolina, South Carolina, and change your entire jurisdiction in a heartbeat. And he would have no reason to know that. There's no suggestion in this case that Mr. Bean would not or have any reason to challenge that she was living in North Carolina. When she met him, she told him she was living in North Carolina. And that never changed. And he provided the cell phone with which to communicate with him. And if there was no untoward issue, then ostensibly a reasonable person, which is the competent evidence standard, would go, well, then why wasn't Mr. Ponder made aware of this phone? And so I know that Mr. Odom is going to argue because there was domestic violence issues and he believed he was he was protecting her. But that's a question of fact. And at this level, the trial court's decision to not believe him cannot be set aside because there is, in fact, competent evidence. And it's well settled that even though there may be evidence to support another finding, that is not what you look to. You look to, does the record have evidence? And in this case, it does. And if there aren't any further questions, if it's all right with you, I'll leave my last eight minutes, eight and a half minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the FLE. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, may it please the court. I'm Preston Odom, and I practice law with a law firm of James McElroy and Deal in Charlotte, North Carolina. I, along with my co-counsel, Clara Samuels of Clara Lam Samuels Law, PLLC, represent the defendant appellee in this case, Stephen Bean. Mr. Bean is an 80-year-old Florida resident. He has been subjected to lawsuits in North Carolina for the past six and a half years by Mr. Ponder, who uh, separated from his then wife, Dee Dee, on November 13th of 2013, eight years and three months ago. That day, uh, Mr. Ponder and Dee Dee took out uh, competing domestic violence protective order complaints against each other, and the trial court, uh, district court in Mecklenburg County, denied Mr. Ponder's and granted Dee Dee's. Since then, uh, those were the first two actions in this overall domestic dispute. Uh, six other legal proceedings have transpired since then, including this one. Um, the first uh, alienation case that Mr. Ponder filed against uh, Mr. Bean was back in November of 2015. Uh, we moved to dismiss that case for lack of personal jurisdiction, and Mr. Ponder took a voluntary dismissal uh, giving Mr. Bean a 364-day breather uh, until Mr. Ponder filed this action in September of 2017. We also moved to dismiss that one on personal jurisdiction grounds, and Judge Bell heard that in March of 2019 and entered his uh, denial of our, of our uh, motion to dismiss later that year. Uh, that order is two pages. Um, as Justice Irvin uh, was pointing out in his questioning, it's, it's really scant on uh, findings of fact. Um, there's really only two components of subcomponents of one finding that actually attempt to resolve factual disputes. Um, and so we appealed to the Court of Appeals in this case, uh, and the court heard it in August of 2020 and issued its decision on December 30th of 2020. And it reversed the denial of my client's motion to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction. And it did it in, in a somewhat unusual fashion. Um, and this will uh, flow into the uh, 
arguments that Ms. Simpson didn't address about actually jurisdiction for this court to actually look at the Court of Appeals decision. Um, Judge Bryant wrote an opinion that set forth her reasoning as to why she thought the trial court erred. Judge Brooks concurred in result only without an opinion. And Judge Stroud uh, wrote what she denominated a dissenting opinion, setting forth the reasons why she would vote the other way um, and would have affirmed the denial of my client's motion to dismiss. In that situation, there really is no majority opinion or dissenting opinion uh, from which uh, Mr. Ponder had a right to appeal to this court under 78-30 subsection 2 uh, and rules 14 and 16 of our appellate rules. There, there is uh, Judge Bryant's opinion was really a result-only opinion, um, the Sellers versus Ox, uh, Ox case, and uh, we cite in our motion to dismiss appeal, uh, use that phraseology, um, and I think it's apt. Um, and, and so in that situation, what you really have is a result-only opinion. You have a result-only dissent, and you've got the concurrence that doesn't give any reasoning. And so um, this court is not an error-correcting court most of the times. Um, and, and the purpose behind the double appeal as a matter of right set forth in 7A-30 subsection 2 um, is to provide this court a mechanism to decide cases that are uh, where you've got two uh, Court of Appeals judges going one way with reasoning and uh, the uh, dissenting judge also having reasoning that conflicts with the majority's reasoning because those present matters of importance uh, for North Carolina jurisprudence. This case doesn't have that. There's no precedential value of the Court of Appeals decision below. And so what Mr. Ponder is really asking this to do, this court to do is act as all of her arguments, uh, Ms. Simpson's arguments here were about whether competent evidence supported the scant findings in the two-page order. And that's not the type of case that this court is supposed to be hearing under the appeal as a matter of right standard under 7A-30 subsection 2. And Despite so we what think... Despite what you say about the findings of fact being scant, uh, nonetheless, are they supported by the evidence that's on the record? Uh, Your Honor, I think that uh, the components of the findings that we've challenged um, was did did Mr. P did Mr. Bean actively communicate electronically with Mary Ponder? I think it does support that, but the but that begs the question about where she was whenever the communications were happening. Remember, uh, Mr. Ponder has alleged that uh, Dee Dee was down in Florida uh, quite a bit uh, between that May and November timeframe. And so if there were calls between them, it could have been in Florida. She could, she might not have been in North Carolina. And it also uh, getting to what Justice Earls asked about um, the content of the communications, despite what Ms. Simpson said, it's not established on the record. When uh, Mr. Mr. Bean and Dee Dee submitted evidence that their first communication when they met at a restaurant in Naples, Florida in May of 2013 was about Dee Dee being abused by Mr. Ponder. And so those communications uh, between Mr. Bean and Dee Dee, if they happen to happen where she was in North Carolina, there's nothing establishing what the content of those communications were. The matters and the matters upon which you are focusing, aren't those the kinds of matters that the finder of fact would analyze, uh, ferret out, and make those findings of fact, which here the trial court did? Your Honor, I do think that those are factual questions the trial court should resolve, but I respectfully disagree that they were actually resolved here. Um, the subcomponents of the two, the, of the one finding uh, that we've challenged um, don't, don't resolve what the content of those communications were. 
doesn't resolve where that where Miss uh, uh, Dee Dee was living at the time of any phone calls that might have been between Mr. Bean and Miss Ponder. Well, are those, um, are those matters that have to be resolved, or is it merely a matter of the evidence that's presented supporting the findings of fact without the sub facts or sub issues which you argue needed to also be determined? Your Honor, I think when you're dealing with uh, this type of claim for alienation of affections with someone who's never been in North Carolina for the past 30 years, that it is necessary for the court to make a factual determination about where DD was at any point in time where the communications occurred, and also to make a finding uh, resolving a disputed issue of fact regarding what the content of those communications might have been to establish specific jurisdiction uh, in uh, comportance with the due process clause. Well, assuming that our court would agree with your position, would we then uh, be more inclined as a court then to uh, remand the matter uh, for further findings since you say that the findings are bereft of what you feel need to be answered as well as findings of fact? Your Honor, I, I think that could have been uh, a possible um, determination. But again, th this court is looking in this in this case at what the Court of Appeals did um, and and what uh, Judge Bryant did in her opinion was to say that the the findings that were made weren't supported by competent evidence um, and didn't really get as far as whether the uh, findings that were made were sufficient to present meaningful appellate review. And so did that decision- you, or, you, Mr. Odom, did you argue before the Court of Appeals in the alternative uh, that the findings were insufficient or did you just argue before the Court of Appeals that they weren't supported by the evidence? Your Honor, I argued both. I, I argued okay. in the alternative. Well, in, um, the, in, the, in the event, you know, in, in even though the, uh, uh, issue of the sufficiency of the findings wasn't part of the discussion between the three opinions that you've already summarized for us. Uh, are you arguing that we don't have the authority to conclude that the findings are insufficient and to uh, order a remand for additional findings, or are you arguing something else? I just want to make sure I'm following what you're what you're saying. Sure, sure, Your Honor. Um, so. So if this if this case is rightly before the court um, under 7A-30 subsection, uh, thir yeah, subsection 2, then the scope of this court's review is supposed to be with respect to issues where there was a disagreement between the majority and the dissent. And this sufficiency or the sufficiency of the findings of fact issue wasn't wasn't addressed in those opinions. And so I would argue that that's beyond the scope of review here. Well, assuming hypothetically that we were to agree that the findings that were made were supported by evidence, would you then be entitled to a remand of the Court of Appeals for the Court of Appeals to consider your alternative argument that the uh, findings were insufficiently specific to permit review? Your Honor, I, I agree. I, I believe that would be an appropriate um, uh, outcome in this to be able to present that argument again to the Court of Appeals. Uh, I, I agree with that. Um, but again, uh, our position is that there wasn't competent evidence to support um, the findings that actually, I guess, weren't made. Um, the you know there were ele there was admittedly electronic contacts between um, Dee Dee uh, and. Mr. Bean at some point in time. Um, but uh, Judge Bryant was right in noting in her, her opinion that was actually nothing, um, no evidence connecting the phone number that appears in the phone records um, that Ms. Simpson uh, entered into evidence. The, the phone number, the North Carolina 704 prefix phone number and the phone that uh, Mr. Bean had purchased for Dee Dee. And again, another factual question, why was that purchased? 
Miss uh, Miss Simpson suggests that it was to carry on some type of untoward uh, relationship between Mr. Bean and Dee Dee. But at the same time, you have the evidence that it, it could have been because she was an abused woman that he was trying to help. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want to ask you something before I lose my train of thought about this. Yes, Justice. Did, did you just did you just say that there is nothing in the record to say that the 704 phone number was connected to Ms. Bean? Your Honor, there is nothing in the record that specifically ties the 704 phone number in those phone records to uh, Miss to, to Dee Dee at that point. Um, there's there's Dee certainly Dee Dee being Mary, then Ponder, now Bean. That's correct. Okay. Um, well, I'm looking at the um, a page from the exhibit filing in the record on appeal um, at page 30 that says user information and it's on an AT&T um, header and it has apparently photocopied a, a post-it note right next to the phone number that says, and I quote, Mary's phone from Bean. So it, are you, this was in evidence, I take it, since it's, a since it's in the record on appeal. Doesn't that tend Your to Honor, support a, a finding that it's that phone? Your Honor, if that, if that were actually evidence, then yes. That's actually a post-it note from opposing counsel. Um, and opposing counsel's post-it note is not evidence. That's argument. Well, it's, it's on a document that's in the record on appeal. And as far as the stuff that we see appears to be documentary evidence in the case. Is there, I don't see anything to say that that's You're, not on it because it is on it in the copy I see. I mean, it's not it's not a physical post-it. It's a photocopy of a page that has a post-it apparently put on it. That's right, Your Honor. We actually argued at the Court of Appeals and before this court that that is a post-it note posted on there by opposing counsel and that it's not evidence that that is that was an argument that counsel was making, that was the only thing linking uh, the alleged phone number to uh, Dee Dee, and it's counsel's argument. It's not evidence. Okay, um, I think I think I understand what you're saying. Um, and as I understand your exchange with Justice Irvin, and correct me if I'm, if I'm misunderstanding it, um, the argument about whether the findings support the conclusions is not currently before this court. Is that correct? Your Honor, yes. I, I don't think that the, the uh, dueling opinions between Judge Bryant and Judge Stroud address that issue. Okay. Um, so, again, oh, getting it's really into only whether there is evidence to support the uh, scant, as they were, have been called, findings of the trial court? Yes, Your Honor. And, and then whether those findings support an ultimate conclusion of whether there was, whether the long arm statute was satisfied, uh, and then whether the, uh, you know, due process uh, was comported with. I thought you just said that the issue of whether the findings support the conclusions was not before the court currently. No, Your only Honor, whether no, the evidence supports the findings. No, what I'm saying is that Judge Bryant determined that there wasn't sufficient evidence to support the findings, and then those findings then do not support the conclusions of the, being able to properly exercise personal jurisdiction in this case. That's what I'm saying. Um, that uh, number one, there isn't competent evidence to support findings that then support the conclusion that the trial court could properly exercise personal jurisdiction over my client in this case. That's what well, I'm saying. This is what I'm trying to make sure that I understood your exchange with Justice Irvin. As I understood his question, he was asking whether the issue of whether the findings of fact, if supported by evidence, were sufficient to support the conclusions in the order should be remanded to the Court of Appeals because it hadn't been addressed. And you answered, yes, it should. That would be appropriate. 
um, because it hadn't been addressed. Is that still what your position is? Yeah, so your honor, and I'm sorry that that I'm not making this clear. Um, what I'm saying is that the findings that are there aren't supported by competent evidence. And I'm that, that part. findings <laughs> right, and that the findings that weren't made also um, are, don't provide a sufficient basis to be able to reach the conclusions about um, whether you could properly exercise personal jurisdiction or not. And that second, that second part was not addressed in the Court of Appeals decision and the dueling opinions. And so if this court were to go against me on the first, then I would want the opportunity to again present that argument to the Court of Appeals on remand for the second question. Okay. That's, that's what I'm saying. I think I'm following you. Thank you. Okay. Can I just follow up on that? I understand what you're saying there, but when I look at the dissent by um, Judge Stroud, she does initially um, address whether or not the findings of fact um, are supported by competent evidence. But then in sections three through the remainder of the dissenting opinion, she looks at the question of whether or not those findings were sufficient to establish solicitation, looks at whether North Carolina law requires any particular type, frequency, or quality of communications. All of those are questions about whether or not the findings um, are sufficient to support the conclusions of law. So, it, 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 if this is an appeal based on the dissent, why isn't it properly before us to determine the, that question? Your Honor, because I, I think you're right that, that Judge Stroud addressed all those issues, but Judge Bryant didn't. Um, and you're only able to uh, review where there's a disagreement on issues between a majority opinion and a dissenting opinion. And so what I'm saying is all of those extra issues that Judge Stroud went into, Judge Bryant didn't. So there's no disagreement between those two opinions if you considered Judge Bryant opinion to be a majority opinion. Which is not. Okay. Well, whether or not we're allowed to consider it, let me ask you about um, that, whether the findings here are sufficient to support um, the conclusion that there's minimum contacts and jurisdiction. And in the in the um, trial court's four B finding of fact, um, they the court finds that the electronic contacts with Mary Ponder while Mary Ponder still lived in North Carolina were significant and that he availed himself to the specific jurisdiction of North Carolina with respect to plaintiff's claim for alienation of affection. Isn't that, a, in essence, a factual finding that the content of the communications related to the claim for alienation of affection? I mean, uh, Your Honor, I, I think that the, the latter part of that finding is actually a legal conclusion. Um, I don't think it's a factual finding. Um, purpose whether one purposely avails one oneself to specific jurisdiction in North Carolina is not a factual question um we've argued in our brief right, um, but it's with, actually at least a mixed question of law and fact but to, but the fact that it goes on to say with respect to plaintiff's claim for alienation of affection how do we how are we to understand that except to say that the the these significant electronic contacts were related to a claim of uh, for alienation of affections. Your Honor, I I, I, I see I see the the tie that you're that you're draw, drawing between those two, but I think it's 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 speculation at that point um, because it hasn't actually determined what the content of the communications were or where they occurred. Um, the the fact that she was uh, living or residing in North Carolina doesn't mean that she was in North Carolina when any of these alleged contacts occurred. Um, I don't think it resolves that. Does, does it does it permit an inference that she might have been there at least at some time when these uh, contacts occurred? Your Honor, I, I think that the the finding suggests that inference. Yes, and and going to a point uh, before I before I. Forget it, Miss um, Simpson. Talking about what we didn't show, it's not my client's burden to disprove uh, the existence of personal jurisdiction. It's her client's uh, obligation and duty to prove 
by a preponderance of the evidence, because there was deposition testimony at issue here too, not just a prima facie case, but by a preponderance of the evidence that it's proper to exercise personal jurisdiction in this case. Well, and we say, go ahead. I'm sorry. I thought you were finished. No, no, no. That's okay. Go ahead, Justice Irwin. Uh, one of the things that you said a number of times in your brief uh, was something I wanted to talk with you about before your time ran out. Uh, yes, obviously, one of the things that we have before us is the complaint. You make a number of arguments in your brief to the effect that uh, you contradicted allegations in the complaint, and therefore that should cause us to disregard those allegations. On the other hand, the, com the complaint in this case was verified, whereas I'm not sure that it was in some of the cases that you're citing. Can you talk to me a bit about what you think is the appropriate use of the verified complaint, given that the verification is a swearing to it, basically? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, I think that uh, whether verified or unverified, um, if the defendant doesn't contradict the allegations in the complaint, that then those are treated as true. Um, so, but so, when, so, your, so, so your argument is that there's no difference between a verified complaint and an unverified complaint uh, for purposes of the issue that's before us here? Your Honor, I, I think that uh, in this case, because we contradicted the allegations in the complaint, which was verified, then then those are that's competing evidence against right. each other. I mean, I mean, that, I mean that's in, and I didn't. I mean, I, I think that's that's certainly consistent with my understanding. But then, if you have competing evidence in the form, on the one hand, of a ver properly verified complaint, and on the other hand, of an affidavit executed by a party with personal knowledge of what what he or she is talking about. Does that not set up a factual dispute for the trial court to resolve? I, I do think it does, Your Honor. And, 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 and in that situation, like we have here, it, it, it raises the burden for the plaintiff um, to not just show up by a prima facie showing uh, the existence of personal jurisdiction, but by a preponderance of the evidence. Um, and if, if, again, if there, the allegations in the complaint were not verified, and they weren't contradicted, then you then you they take those um, as true. Same thing if it were a verified complaint, uncontradicted, you would do the same thing. But in either, but but when the defendant, as in this case, presents evidence that contradicts the verified or unverified allegations, um, it it creates a, a factual dispute for the trial court to resolve. Okay, thank you. And just to follow up on that, the um, plaintiff in her brief says, uh, Mr. Ponder asserted under oath that Mr. Bean contacted Mary on the landline in the marital home in North Carolina. It, 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 is that a, 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 the type of evidence that we've just been talking about? Uh, Mr. Ponder saying under oath that Mary had been contacted on the landline in North Carolina? Your Honor, I, I think that would, if she were contacted on the landline in North Carolina and Mr. Bean called that number, then that would establish that she were, she was there in North Carolina unless she had call forwarding to her cell phone and she wasn't in North Carolina. So just that, that doesn't in and of itself uh, mean that she would have been in North Carolina, even if she had received a call on the landline. Uh, a, a, another point that I'd like to make is, and, and I think we detailed in our brief, um, looking at the, the long arm statute, um, we don't believe that the, the solicitation uh, element was satisfied um, because if there, if you do take, if you do tie the 704 number to Didi um, and then you have Mr. Bean communicating with that telephone number, it's almost all coming from the 704 number into Florida where Mr. Bean is. Um, and so um, if someone from, let's say that person was in North Carolina, is calling someone in another jurisdiction, um, how is that person in other, the other jurisdiction soliciting anything? Um, they aren't initiating the contact. Um, and so uh, we suggest that that doesn't qualify um, as a solicitation under the long arm statute. 
Um, and I, I see my time is running out. I just wanted to, to uh, bring up two additional issues on um, that we raised in our motion to dismiss. Um, uh, another reason we think the case is not properly before this court is we say they didn't, that Mr. Ponder did not perfect his appeal to this court. Um, rule 14A of the appellate rules um, since being promulgated in 1975 has had a requirement that an appellant who seeks to appeal to this court um, as a matter of right has to file the notice of appeal on both the Court of Appeals and this court. Um, Mr. Ponder did not do that here. He only filed his notice of appeal uh, with the clerk of this court and did not do so with the clerk of the Court of Appeals. I have not been able to find a case that specifically addresses that type of default, but it certainly is analogous to uh, the jurisdictional default that occurs where a party uh, appealing from a business court decision and that party only files the notice of appeal in a timely fashion with the business court, but not in the clerk of the superior court where the case is pending, that's a jurisdictional problem. We contend that the failure to comply with Rule 14A is also a jurisdictional defect requiring dismissal of the appeal. And then uh, lastly, um, in uh, Ms. Simpson's notice of appeal, um, we contend that it didn't properly preserve any issue with respect to the Court of Appeals. Uh, decision in this case. Um, uh, actually, the bulk of the notice of appeal uh, deals with a case that isn't even before this court. It looks like it comes from the Crowell versus Crowell decision um, and language taking from the notice of appeal there and put here. Uh, but more importantly, the only issue that Ms. Simpson listed in the notice of appeal was whether the trial court erred by denying the motion to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction filed by defendant Appley doesn't say anything about the Court of Appeals. And this court is reviewing the Court of Appeals decision for any legal error. And that issue is not before the court based on the notice of appeal that Mr. Ponder filed. I appreciate your- uh, Thank you, your Thank you counsel. Uh, we'll hear from the, uh, any rebuttal? I'll start with that issue. In this case, I would argue that rule 14 is not the rule that you will be looking at to determine whether or not the appeal is proper because that deals with the uh, appeal from the trial court to the Court of Appeals, whereas uh, North Carolina Rule of Procedure uh, 21A deals with appeals to the, um, that might be covered by a writ, scope of a writ. And in particularly in the case that Mr. Odom cited, Cox v. Steffs 161 NC App 237, for two propositions. One, that the appeal was not perfected because the notice of appeal was not filed in the Superior Court. And for this concept that because there was no, uh, that, that this was not properly a dissent case with the grant of the uh, automatic right to the Supreme Court. Well, in that Cox v. Seth case, first of all, the it is only a footnote that mentions the fact that there is in, uh, that there was a one judge who gave an opinion, one judge con concern, con concurring in the result and the another judge dissenting. Therefore, arguably there was no majority opinion or so says this footnote. But the Supreme Court's procurium decision simply stated affirmed without specifying which opinion was the basis for that affirmance. It does not stand for the proposition that this, this did not properly include a dissent simply because there were two votes to uh, set aside the trial court's decision, but only one wrote the opinion. And so that cannot, in my opinion, be precedential value, much less the fact that um, uh, Judge Stroud, who is now the chief uh, North Carolina Court of Appeals judge, refers to it as a dissent throughout her opinion. So if that is going to be the case, that if, if the, the judge involved in the opinion references it herself as a dis, uh, dissenting opinion and refers to it frequently as a dissenting opinion, and that somehow makes it not a dissenting, dissenting opinion, that could probably be a clarification to the rules as there is not a, any uh, case on point about for what Mr. Odom argues that because there it is, there two justices did not concur in the actual writing of the opinion that somehow this does not give us a right to go to the Supreme Court. Further, and I quote, 
in rule, uh, this case, quote, rule 21A, that the, you have the court, uh, the court has, the Court of Appeals has the decision uh, under rule of appellate procedure to exercise jurisdiction and grant cert to review plaintiffs on their, uh, uh, claims on their merits, even if the party has failed to file a timely notice of appeal. So in that case, I would argue that the court has the jurisdiction. We are here today arguing the actual merits of the case and that what Mr. Odom has uh, proffered does not in any way impinge upon our ability to have this appeal. Now, going backwards, I would argue, I wanted to point out. Let me stop you for just a second and ask you about that. Um, the, the rules, I'm looking at the rules of appellate procedure and rule 14B1 is specifically about notice of appeal to this court based upon a dissent in the court of appeals. Correct. Rule 21 is about the writ of certiorari. And as I see the documents in this case, there appears to be a notice of appeal based on a dissenting opinion, not a petition for writ of certiorari. Am I, am, am I missing a petition? You're not, but I read, I read rule 21 as the ability to, to uh, find that the appeal is proper on its own basis. Um, under rule 21, even if the appeal was not taken, um, was not timely taken. Because it yeah, yeah, we, well, there, there have, there have been instances where we, on our own motion have treated a late or defective notice of appeal as a petition for writ of certiorari and have allowed it on our own motion or upon a petition by a party, but I didn't see a petition here. And I just wanted to make sure that I'm not missing some documentation that, that I'm not seeing. You're not Justice Hudson, and we would argue those would be one of the cases that you can take it up on your own motion um, if if you find that the appeal, the appeal process was not particularly satisfied in all um, points of the of the rule. That we would ask you to do that. But you're correct; there is no petition for writ as we were acting on the the way that the case was styled as a dissenting opinion from um, Justice uh, Stroud at the time. Are you conceding that there's a defect in the notice of appeal and the way it was filed? We we do not we do not concede that, and we do not believe that that if there is not a notice to the actual clerk of superior court, that that would not be a jurisdictional defect. But what what I am saying is that so no, and if you disagreed with me, I would argue that that we filed our, our notice of appeal with the court of appeals and or with this court, and that you have the discretion to determined that it's not a jurisdictional error that we substantially complied with the process. We we completed records on opinion, the record on appeal, the briefs were filed and all the other uh, all of the other rules and processes were followed. Nobody nobody attempted delay or otherwise disturb it. Um, and that we are properly before you. And okay, while, you. I have, while I have you, Justice um, Hudson, I wanted to point out something that you actually pointed out that the note on the um, on the records, uh, although uh, that they argued at the uh, Court of Appeals and to you that it was just argument that sticky note was given to the court and they saw the sticky note given to the trial court and we they put that version with the sticky note on it in their proposed record on appeal. At no point did they seek to remove the sticky note. Did they seek to strike it? Did they seek seek to um, go? We didn't challenge it with the trial court judge because it was in there. It's it, as far as we're concerned, it's part of the record. So well, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you about that. So it's your position that that page in the in the exhibits with the sticky note on it as photocopied is part of the evidence before yes. the court. And there okay. is nothing on the record to suggest that anyone moved to have that stricken from the record. In fact, it's highlighted in color. I mean, it's a color sticky note. Had is is it is it Ms. Simpson? Is it clear on the record that that note's in in your handwriting and that you made it? Um, I don't think I'd have to go look. I don't think there's any dispute about it. I we handed it up. Okay. I mean, I'm just trying to get the facts yeah. right here. It is no, in your writing. The, the sticky definitely went with the documents that were he accepted, the judge accepted into evidence. I don't remember the specific, it is our handwriting. We put that forward. And um, I don't know, I don't know um, if you need more than that, but it was at the time. This was not later when the, the, the record was being prepared. It was 
in the trial court at the time. So there, so I wanted to close that loop. And Justice Earls, I wanted, or is it, how do you pronounce your last name? Is it Earls? Okay, great. I'm back with Nance today, so you have to forgive me. I wanted to point out for you a definitive answer. Um, if you look at Brown v. Ellis, the Supreme Court version, 363 MC 360, page um, uh, 364, it specifically discusses exactly what you asked for. Well, what happens if they say that, well, we weren't talking about, um, you know, alienating affections, we were talking about something different. And you said we were talking, that we're finding that you were talking about something different. The, the North Carolina Supreme Court said that won't, that is not a necessary determination to, to in, in order to, you don't have to close that loop in order to satisfy jurisdiction. In this case, in the Brown v. Ellis case, the party that was speaking with the spouse said it was only for work-related purposes. The other, the, the plaintiff said it was for improper purposes under a verified affidavit, which I do believe is important. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, everyone. Madam Clark. Thank you very much for your time. The Supreme Court of North Carolina is now in recess. God save the state and this honorable court. Thank you. It was my honor to appear here today. Um, I 